Welcome to episode 73 of Fratello On Air. Today, joining us from Norway, from their sand booth slash car, we have Lasse and Estein from Straum Watches. How are you doing, guys? Good. Thanks yeah. for asking. Thanks for having us. It's a real pleasure. And uh, I also like to learn the little tip of when you don't have a sand booth in the near vicinity, get in a car. Exactly. Always learning. If anyone's following Fratello closely, which I hope you all are, you will probably have noticed that we've been featuring Straum on our uh, Instagram channel quite a lot recently, and uh, also it featured in our Independent Insights column written by Dave Sargent in the recent past. But I'm a personal fan of this brand, and I wanted to get the guys on the air to discuss the origins of the brand, uh, the thinking behind it, what they hope from it. So without further ado, as I wrote in the notes... Who the heck are you and what are you doing on my podcast? First of all, I think you invited us. So uh, <laughs> that's why we're here. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, we've been working for, uh, I think, five years now with uh, developing the Strom brand and our first first two watch models. It's been taking a very long time and we've changed manufacturers for a couple of times. So, so now we're finally releasing the product and uh, we're overwhelmed with the kind of feedback we're getting from both the watch society and and uh from fratello for instance yeah mm. yeah so it's very nice to get the chance to go more in detail about the design the brand and the intentions we have behind our uh, products well that's a good place to start so when did the idea for Straum first emerge so i think uh we we have slight variations on this story, but I, I think the truth is that uh, Lasse initially had this idea of of um, doing watches that are sort of rooted in in Norway and and building a brand based on on Norway, um, and so that was you know five plus years ago, uh, and Lasse had this idea of you know how about we we you know we we find special places or things in in norway that we can uh, you know sort of capture the story of and then put that you know item or place into a watch which is typically you know a sort of a vessel that you carry around with you um and then we can you know create some cool products and also um have them sort of attached to the stories so um, yeah so is it inspired particularly by the world around you or by the legends of Norway or, you know, the, the idea of using that watch in those environments? Yeah, I mean, Norway, I guess like most countries, you know, we have a history obviously goes way back and we have a strong heritage and, and you know, we have uh, sort of legends and, and stories that we are kind of embedded in in our culture and and some of them I think are quite attractive to to you know people outside of our country and and those were some of the stories that we wanted to tell and obviously Norway is known for you know beautiful nature and and um, yeah the sort of resources that we have here and 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 we wanted to share that as well with uh, you know the watch community in the world. I do think that the character of Norway and its myths and legends do capture the imagination, internationally speaking. I know I was kind of bewitched by the country when I was younger, but having the right kind of imagination in the team is also very important. So how did you go about assembling the right 
force to bring this project to life? So yeah, the, the core team of Strom is basically me and Einstein. Um, we're both, uh, we have a background of industrial design, uh, concept development, and also a bit of UX design as well. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we have a lot of experience creating concepts and, and kind of uh, doing this whole idea. We go way back, Lasse and I, uh, from, from school. So we, we know each other well and we have the design background and, and that's the core team. But then we also know, you know, the shortcomings of being a designer. So we've made sure we've partnered up with, you know, experts and movie producers and photographers. And, you know, they've been phenomenal in helping us launch the brand and, and the product. And and I think, you know, this should be well known to established um, uh, watch manufacturers, but having a good manufacturing partner is, you know, absolute key. Mm. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think when it comes to a micro brand, um, you're judged on two things. The first thing you're judged on is how you present the brand to the media and to the potential buyers. And then that whole rigmarole will get you your first sale but it is the product that will get you the second because you have to deliver on all those promises and all on all those ideas so having a manufacturing partner in place that can execute a design especially one as ambitious as yours i have to say um for the price point you're operating in is absolutely essential so it did come across to me when i looked at your media it's all exceptionally polished for a new brand some major brands could learn from it do you find that the benefit in delegating to those external shall we say, or partners, media partners, um, is is something that's essential for a new brand when they're trying to start out rather than trying to do everything themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, photographing a watch is quite hard. You have reflections everywhere and and you really have to uh, know what you're doing to to get a professional result. So we, we have teamed up with uh, studio photographers, lifestyle photographers and movie makers just to uh, create whatever we need to, to to make our own small universe with a high quality uh, product and presentation. And then we're also getting more and more into the content production ourselves. So for, for instance, we, we were in need of uh, close up, uh, really, really close up studio shots, like movie clips of the watch. Mm-hmm. So we ended up buying a lot of uh, electronic uh, components like motors and motor controllers and everything. And then we made our own like rotating arm that we could control with precision. And we cleaned up the basement in Oystein's uh, uh, apartment. And we rigged up uh, a whole studio and we used the whole weekend to, to just film super close-ups of the watch. So every uh, clip that you see on our website or Instagram that is that has this slowly rotating uh, watch is, is made in the basement of Einstein's apartment with a homemade rig. So we're, we're, we're also starting to take a lot of like lifestyle and kind of uh, environment shots of the watch, I guess. Uh, but it's a learning process for us as well. Mm. So, uh, but I think, uh, I think it's really important to get all the material in place to present. If you're presenting a premium product, you should also have a premium presentation for it, right? Mm. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And it comes off very well as a finished, polished presentation. But it does look very expensive to produce that kind of thing. How are you funding it? Is it self-funded or do you have external investors or what's the story? It's all self-funded. Um, Oof. And, 
<laughs> but that's that's honestly it's been our goal all along um we we've discussed investors multiple times and in fact we've got multiple requests uh actually after launching of, of people who would like to invest and you know we're we're flattered and happy to hear that um that being said um we find value in sort of being able to fully call the shots ourselves uh and so I think we plan on keeping it that way, at least for a while. Uh, and I think, I think investors are relevant when scaling. But then again, we don't necessarily want to scale too fast because ultimately we, you know, we care about delivering a quality product to, to our uh, customers, right? Mm. Yeah, I think you have to hold on to it for as long as you can, especially for the soul of the brand. I mean, it's true of any business. I think it always starts out with the best intentions. And then as things grow and they get a little bit, too weighty perhaps weightier than the original business plan ever intended they uh they can quickly spiral out of control and lose the original essence of a project so yeah good on you um nice nice work being able to fund it i'm sure that took a few years of preparation but um so far so good it's looking brilliant uh, talking of the brand itself though the name Straum. now it's an interesting one it popped out at me when i saw it because uh you know, it's similar to some names that exist in watchmaking already. Armin Strom was the first one that um, occurred to me. And there's a couple of like Storm watches, you know, the uh, fashion brand, which you definitely don't want to be confused with. <laughs> um, what's the thinking behind it? Why did you settle on it? And uh, does, it have a, does it have a meaning? Yeah, I mean, we, we went back and forth with, with names um, throughout these, you know, five years and Eventually, we so we had we had a working title for for the longest time, but we got some indications that it might not be the best name internationally. So we did a fairly big sort of uh, user research study on it, where we sent it out to a big group of of friends and acquaintances, uh, you know, based in 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 other countries than Norway, and and basically got them to give their opinion on what they thought worked and what invoked you know the right kind of feelings and connotations and uh Strum was actually the clear winner in in that survey and so it was actually quite easy for us to to make that choice you know the interesting thing is although you pronounce it very differently from me and obviously you're pronouncing it correctly and I am typically as I always do mispronouncing something that isn't english however it is easy to say you know, you can read it in any language. I think that is that is fair enough. You might not say it in exactly the same way, but uh, I remember there was once a, a a massive branding issue with a cleaning product in England, which was called uh, Jif. You ever heard of it? Jif, J I F. But on the continent, it was called um, Sif with a C, because in certain countries, I think Spain was the particular offender. The the J was just um, ruining their brand awareness, so they had to change it. Uh, internationally, and it caused quite a stir. I don't think you'll have that problem with Straum, uh, because however however you say it, I think it will be uh, identifiable. Yeah, let's mm. hope that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fing- um, fingers crossed. Happy. However, the thing is, the product is your first ambassador, and uh, it is a fantastic one to have carrying the torch for the company. And I also love the logo, by the way, the uh, the, the S that disappears. It, it It looks like a sea monster to me. I don't know if it's supposed to be the neck of a a sea monster poking out of the water, but I could just imagine it floating around in the fjord. So very nice. You're, you're biased by the Loch Ness uh, heritage. I am biased <laughs> by the Loch Ness heritage. And you know, I was even further biased when I first heard you say Strom because I thought it sounded very Scottish. 
I really oh. did. I thought it was like, are you saying it like I say it, but in a Scottish accent? But obviously that's Norwegian. I guess the two countries' heritage and languages, I suppose, are tied closer together than I often appreciate. So, yeah, yeah you I go. think you're right. We're happy to hear that. <laughs> so um, now you've started out on this road and it's been five years of a journey already. What challenges have you identified for micro brands or new brands? I, I guess you position yourself as a micro or as a small independent. How do you prefer to be referred to? That's a good question. Um, what What is the clear distinction in your opinion? Well, it's a long conversation. I don't think there's much of a clear distinction, although I have tried to define it. Um, I believe, if I'm off the top of my head, what I say is the key tenet of a small independent is that they have a retail network. And that's the biggest difference between them and a micro brand. Generally, micro brands, in my opinion, sell direct to consumer so they can cut out the middleman and offer a higher quality product at a more accessible price. I believe that is really the primary goal of a micro brand. However, some micros, as I would define them, take umbrage at being called micros and prefer to be referred to as small independents. And I think, well, mm. when you talk about yeah. small independents, you're also rolling MB and F and Urverk into that conversation. Um, and, you know, you maybe have to put some kind of price cap on it to like separate those two, maybe sub 5,000 would be a good place to start. But then you always find exceptions along the way. And, you know, it's an endless debate. It's probably a seven hour podcast in itself. But um, <laughs> since I'm a, a huge fan of micro brands, uh, not all of them, in fact, probably the minority, but a huge fan of the movement, I don't, I don't mean anything negative by it at all. I think that it just shows that you're standing up to an industry and uh, doing it your own way. Yeah, it's funny that you you mentioned this because we we took a very uh, like um, we took a stand on this quite early in the process because we we um, we saw that almost every one of the micro brands online they they kind of market themselves as uh, like luxury for less amount of money right they cut out yeah. the middleman and then yeah uh, and and they all shout the same thing uh, right. so they basically they shout all the same we wanted to to be a little bit different so we of course we want to provide like a high quality product to an accessible price for our cu customers but we don't want to communicate that that should be like uh perceived by the customers like they should see the price they should feel the quality of the product and then we can get the freedom to communicate whatever makes us special right so our connection to norwegian nature and uh and and the use of materials that have a history we wanted to focus more on that and less on the high quality low price uh, kind of uh, argument hmm. that's a very wise and uh, extremely rare standpoint to take do you both have backgrounds in branding or uh, product design yeah we both have background in branding and okay. we've been working in consultancy for many years so, and okay. also in companies doing branding as well so uh, well it shows because i have a serious problem with any micro brand that's uh, attempting to democratize luxury or provide luxury at an accessible price that word is thrown around willy-nilly and it should be used very rarely and certainly not in the context of the watches that they're producing under that label mm. luxury is not uh, democratizable. It is not accessible by its nature, but quality mm. is. Now you can make a good quality product at a fair price, which is what all small brands, all new brands at the sub, I don't know, one 5k mark, wherever you want to put the marker should be trying to do. And I think that's what you've done. And I think 
it really stood out to me that you weren't peddling the same nonsense that I see a lot of the times on these microbrand groups about how this watch is going to upend the industry and it's going to disrupt everybody's way of doing things. Like, yeah, it's not. Of course it's not, but it is a beautiful product and it looks like it's got genuine inspiration and uh, a wonderful aesthetic that's been brilliantly executed. So four marks on the branding side of things, but I mean, you didn't need me to tell you that. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So tell me this, with such an amazing start and uh, the kind of feedback you've been getting from buyers, potential buyers, uh, the media, um, what is success in your mind? What does it amount to? The cliche, but still the genuine answer to that question is, um, you know, customers being overjoyed when they unpack, unbox the, the, the product and, and actually see it and try it on and, you know, it gives them a special sort of feeling you know that that is i think the main success that we we consider right and that's really what we're optimizing for all the way um and of course you have success come i guess in many forms and you know making a living out of this is something that we're really aiming for uh you know uh, we really enjoy it so if we could do this full time and and uh you know create new products and just you know, continue this work, then then we would be thrilled to do that. Yeah, let me also mention that we uh, we really enjoyed adding kind of this character to to each model. So whenever we find a story that we like, we try to or we we brainstorm on how we can make this uh, affect the whole watch, basically. So the choice of materials, the choice of finishing. Uh, the artwork on the case back, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for me, at least, I, I would consider it a success if we can continue to develop these characteristic histories that we or stories that we sell within the watch. Well, three good answers. I certainly don't regard the first answer as a cliche, to be honest. I don't think enough brands put the customer front and center. I think the uh, general response is uh, money, you know, uh, to, mm. to, to, to be like superstars and rock stars of the watch industry and whatnot and to yeah as i said turn it on its head uh, it sounds like you've got humble and i think given the product very attainable goals i mean it is truly stunning and you, you know i've got an obsession with dial texture and i've been banging this drum for the last couple of years that colors are not what's important at the moment in watchmaking it really is about the texture of the dial and you've managed to bring an awful lot of depth into a very small space um I, I've read the inspirations of this style, but for all of our listeners that haven't, perhaps you could describe it to them and the colors available. Yeah, uh, we offer four colors and th they all kind of take inspiration from different parts of Norwegian nature. So I can I can take the white one first, which is probably the most clear, connect, has the most clear connection to Norwegian nature. Uh, so the, the texture itself, looks kind of looks like snow that has been laid there for a while so it gets these concave kind of cuts in it um and uh we actually have a couple of recordings showing this connection and it's it's really apparent and it can also remind uh of stone textures uh or like a forest seen from above uh and uh, the last one is kind of the the deep blue fjords of norway uh, you have the glaciers, right, coloring the, the water, and then you get these deep, deep, deep water uh, colors, which are really nice. 
And ju- just a nerdy uh, remark to that, because I, uh, a fascinating thing about this is that these textures are like what what's called scale independent. So it means that, you know, if you look at a glacier from 200 meters above, or if you look at, you know, the details of a um, uh, texture that you find on a rock or somewhere in nature or a stone, they tend to look quite similar, right? Uh, or the ocean floor. So, so there's some fascinating sort of dynamics happening in in the fact that they're kind of scale independent. Mm. And we're also focusing on trying to capture some of the mystics of the Norwegian nature. So, uh, Norway is a quite harsh place to live. Uh, like maybe not everywhere, but uh, a lot of Norway is not uh, n- not habitated at all. Mm. Uh, and this is due to the, the rocky uh, mountains and the the not in America, of course, but <laughs> uh, the, like the the nature is quite uh, hostile and and uh, rough. So I think I think some of that is captured in the dials, actually. And which color is your favorite, personally, each of you? Uh, <laughs> I think mine is the green one. I think it's uh, it has some depth in the color and and really captures the forest feel i think yeah i think we've both gravitated towards the green one uh i still think i am still kind of leaning towards the blue but yeah somewhere between green and blue i'm definitely torn between the two as well um i have a bit of an obsession with green dials and i i've spoken to you guys about this before and i'd I'd just like to tell the listeners that soon we will have a three-way comparison coming up on fratello between the green straum my lavender marine uh, from Clermont Gold and also the Chapek Antarctic Viridian Green that we made with Chapek for Fratello. And the reason for this is that we've got three very striking green dialed watches with different textures. So Straum's obviously got this very uh, unique stamped, um, it is stamped, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, stamped uh, texture. Then the Lavender Marine is brushed and the Chapek is also stamped and then CVD plated. And they operate in three very different price points. So Stram was sub 1000. The Lavender Marine, when it was released, it was about 1500, 1600 francs, but the collection has gone north price wise. And so I'm classing that one as a sub five, sub three, let's say option. And then the Chapek is way, way, way uh, off in the distance. And that's around 20,000. I have to take out the tax to get it under 20. So we'll call it sub 20 minus tax. Mm-hmm. And, there's similarities um, between these three watches in, in in their sort of general mean and certain design elements. It makes me feel like they're going to appeal to the same kind of person. And since I'm one of those those people I'm talking about, I think it would be interesting for the readers to see this and just to see like the distinct quality you can get if you look in the right places at different price points. And I'm very excited to do that. Although I must say the first one that caught my eye, and this is unusual for me, because I don't have many blue dials in the collection, was the blue for some reason. It made me want to dive into it. I'll be very cold by the looks of things. So whose idea was the dial? We haven't mentioned this model yet in this this podcast, but you know we have our limited edition wooden dial made from you know 3,300-year-old 3, um, wood. Uh, but then we also wanted to create a product offering that was, you know, priced in a bit lower and more available for people, not limited to the same extent that the, the Rostarkov watch is. And so we wanted to, we wanted to make sure that, you know, that watch also 
really provided some solid value. So uh, we, we spent quite a lot of time figuring out sort of how do we, you know, make this style truly special. And I think, again, Lasse, I'll ascribe the idea to him. He, he uh, really wanted to sort of push towards this textures in nature approach. So uh, we spent some time iterating and sort of sketching out ideas for that and eventually had that sculpted into a few different uh, variants and, and landed on the one that we have now. It's amazing. I'm really pleased to see it. But it is, uh, to me, as far as Norwegian brands go, it stands out as very, very artful. And I say that because in my experience of working in Norway and with Norwegian retailers, the market seems to be very much focused on rugged, go anywhere, do anything watches. In fact, for listeners trying to get an idea of what kind of brands prosper up north, I believe that Satina is in the top five, which globally is a bizarre statistic. Where do you see Stram fitting into that market? And have you designed it specifically to appeal to an international as well as a domestic market? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, we, we always hoped that Norway would be a great market for us, but we also wanted to appeal to uh, other markets like uh, the US, uh, Europe, and eventually Asia as well. Um, uh, but, uh, but capturing that kind of, um, adventurous spirit of Norway, because we've been quite famous for being adventurers, right? The Vikings, uh, uh, sailed to America, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I think that, um, adventurous spirit is quite important to us. And I think we're, we're also planning to, to embrace that more not just uh, not just the idea of adventures but actually going on adventures in the future and kind of uh bringing the our not listeners but our customers and viewers uh with us on this these journeys so um well yeah i, I think yeah, that's a major part of our brand moving forward, I think. Anytime you want to drag Fratello up to Norway, I'll be happy to uh, hop on a plane. That sounds yeah, like a nice Yeah, we'd luxury. love to have you as well. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me this. How do our listeners go about buying one of these watches? And when they do buy them, what can they expect to get in the packet? What kind of straps do they have? What kind of boxes? You know, Go ahead and tell us what, what comes with the watch. Yeah, so uh, you can buy the watches online at strom.co put that in the in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> yes sir uh, <laughs> and in terms of uh, what you can expect uh, it it varies a bit depending on whether it's the limited edition or the upav sort of the texture dials that we're talking about now uh, obviously the limited edition is is already sold out uh, but in the in the um, in the texture dial version that we're discussing now you'll get a uh, travel pouch you know, leather travel pouch. We we were back and forth on you know what what should we provide for the customer? Should we give them a big elaborate box, or should we maybe provide them with a sort of more um, useful travel pouch uh, and 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 have that be also an added value to the product? We landed on on doing the travel pouch. You also get a obviously a brochure and. All the necessary documentation uh, on warranty and and all these things. Um, yeah, uh, and, and and each watch comes with a custom leather strap that is integrated, and and we're also looking into other strap uh, options at the moment. So we we've been picking up quite strong uh, wishes from our customers. Mm. So uh, we're currently looking into that and uh, developing something uh, quite interesting. I think. And we, just to add that, um, we made sure that these uh, 
watch cases are backwards compatible with all future sort of metal and rubber uh, straps. And um, I, I don't know if ever, if you've picked up on this, but uh, we've we've done something that I think not many other brands have done, which is to actually add two uh, uh, like pin bar holes for straps. So it'll fit the custom straps that we provide. It'll fit any 22 mil strap, uh, but it'll also then perfectly fit uh, NATO straps, you know, that typically require a bit more padding. Uh, yeah. Oh, interesting. So you've actually, you actually have two spring bar positions on the watch. Yeah. Mm. Huh. Very clever. Yeah. I've only seen that a handful of times. It's very, very, very rare, but very smart design decision because that's one of the uh, things people often mention when it comes to integrated strap design is that they feel that the strap options are limited, but taking care of that and being able to answer that question in the product is very, very wise. Nice work. Yeah, we know how, how important it is for people to be able to customize their watch uh, with different straps, etc. So so we wanted to cater for that. Yeah, and we have a weak point for NATO straps as well. So. Yeah, me too. Me too. I love a good NATO or Zulu. Absolutely adore them. Um, you insinuated in that answer that there is a future plan. And I like the fact that there's a future plan, but how many years or model releases have you actually planned ahead? What have you got lined up in the future? Should this model take off? Uh, we we have, uh, I think, uh, more than 10 ideas for different stories wow. we want to bring to life. Yeah, yeah. so so we, we have obtained some of the material and we have uh, kind of agreed with, with uh, partners on other materials and stories. And we also have some quite uh, interesting ideas, uh, like creative um, execution of finishes and watches uh, we want to make. So definitely going to do more stories in the future. And we saw that the first story was actually uh, surprisingly popular, I would say. We, we, yeah, we were kind of, uh, we, we were uh, excited to see that it, it actually was super popular. Mm. So it sold out really quick. So we're eager to get into it and make some more stories, actually. And the the Opav is not limited, right? At the moment, that is just uh, regular production. But uh, is there a cap on how many you're actually able to produce uh, while also uh, providing a decent lead time for, for buyers? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the short answer there is, is yes. I mean, there's always limitations in that sense. Um, and we, we have limited the first production run to 500 watches in total. Uh, and that is to make sure that we can provide, you know, that, uh, solid customer experience for our first customers. Uh, and, you know, depending on demand, we, you know, we, we might consider, uh, producing more of them, but that's to be decided. Yeah. I think, you know, the whole limited conversation is another controversial one when it comes to watchmaking and our brand, do some brands abuse the idea of limits? But I think when it comes to a small uh, independent company at the very beginning of its journey, you shouldn't, one shouldn't look at it as limited production. One should look at it as batch production. You know, like you say, your reputation in this first uh, opportunity to buy is absolutely imperative to maintain. And so being able to guarantee that you can deliver the product properly quality controlled in a reasonable time frame, is not quite the same as let's not name any brands, but some massive Swiss uh, group-owned brand churning out limited after limited after limited just to uh, capitalize on the FOMO that that generates. This is not really the same thing. This is kind of 
uh, making sure that you're able to live up to the promises you make to the people that you're grateful for backing you in the first instance. So I think it's a wise strategy. And uh, if you adopt the batch production method going forward, I don't think anybody would have a problem given the artfulness and the artisanal nature of the dials. That's just my take on it. (laughs) I think it makes sense for sure. All right, guys, uh, that was a very illuminating chat. One more thing I want to ask before we leave the movement inside this watch. What are we talking? So the movement is a Solida SV201-1, right? You know, I'm sure for for people who are interested in watches, they know the... The background of that movement and uh, and what it provides and and obviously also what it doesn't provide compared to more expensive offerings. Uh, but given that we wanted to have a um, you know reasonable price point, we wanted to have this product available for you know a, the the mass market. Uh, we we uh, we landed on this movement. The good thing about this movement is that uh, you know. The supply is not super constrained, which means that we can offer predictability and and keep our promises in terms of delivery dates. So in the end, that was a, I we thought a a wise choice for us. Okay, finally, how much do these models cost? So the limited edition one, which is now sold out, you know, that's uh, sixteen hundred and sixty nine euros, um, excluding taxes and you know VAT. Uh, and then the Upov texture dial that we were discussing is 829 euros. 829, and that includes the strap, the box, the beautiful watch, and delivery? Does it include delivery? Yep. Ah, even better. All right, thanks, guys. That was absolutely awesome. I wish you all the success in the world. We will be featuring the comparison review on Fratello soon, as well as standalone reviews of the models that Stram are able to send to us and uh, look out for that follow the guys on instagram what's the instagram handle strom easy easy peasy very nice love it no underscores no dots just the word strom that's s-t-r-a-u-m pronounce it how you like but make sure you follow them guys a real pleasure hope to speak to you again soon likewise thank you for inviting us